Welcome to Hiraith, the home of modern Welsh politics. As March ends and the first quarter of the year draws to a close, we at Hiraith are taking a look back at the key issues so far in 2023 and the next big things on the horizon. We had a budget to look back on, Welsh conferences, Boris in committee, health boards in special measures. But as we record, the SNP have elected Hamza Yusuf as their leader and the next First Minister of Scotland. And Wales was today rocked by a Public Accounts Committee report highlighting the return of over £100 million to the UK government's treasury. So there's plenty to reflect on, and also to reflect on the fact that someone can call a Public Accounts Committee report uh, shocking. Uh, don't think that's ever happened before, is it, Karen? I love the public. I love the. Public I love the public accounts committee. It, it's, if you get if you get interested in Welsh politics and you've only got time for a couple of committees, the public accounts committee has to be up there as the one to to spend a little bit of time looking at. What I call the committee for the purists, Kerry, a bit like PACAC in uh, Westminster, the Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Committee. But there's a PACAC here. It's just, this is the same PACAC, different PACAC. Well, I, I'm sure we will come to uh, the Public Accounts Committee uh, report, which was in the news today, recording on Monday the 27th. But I, th- I think I wanted to start on Scottish politics, Matt. As a political geeky type, I'm woefully ill-informed on Scottish politics below the headlines. I'm just wondering, when you're more in-depth political knowledge, have you got a take on the new SNP leader? He, he was the party preferred choice, is it fair to say? Well, well, he wasn't, so he was obviously the preferred choice of the members. Um, you mean, was he the uh, favourite? Yeah, wasn't he the anointed follower for Nicola? Uh, well, n- not yes and no. I mean, Kate Forbes, is, the SNP leaders have had a tendency to sort of put people in position where they can gain the experience necessary to become the next first minister. So that's what Salmon did to Sturgeon. It's what Sturgeon had started to probably do with Kate Forbes. But I think that the interviews that Kate Forbes gave at the beginning of the election period where her religion was and the religion and the views of her religion were called into uh, question about their, what that would mean for her if she became first minister. I think from that point on, it became very obvious that Yusuf was the favourite, the, the front runner in the contest, just because a lot of their membership is fairly progressive and some of the views that Kate Forbes espoused were not seen to be in keeping with that progressive politics. But if you actually look at the result, uh, especially after the second round, so in the first round, Humza Yusuf won something like 48% of the vote compared to Kate Forbes' 40. Now, considering how bad uh, a beginning of this campaign that Kate Forbes had, 40% is very impressive, I'd like to say. But I think it also reflects on the fact that a lot of people down here in Wales think that the SNP are this incredibly progressive party, and that's not to say that they are. It's also to highlight their membership is a lot more conservative than I think we gave it credit for. And that's not to say necessarily that they have to be conservative in order to back Kate Forbes' views. It's just to say that something that is underpriced in by the Welsh and English commentariat, because the SNP have used views of this sort of great leftist force north of the border, is that their membership, being an independence movement rather than a one based on economic ideology, tends to be a bit all over the place. It's not solely progressive it's not solely conservative it's a bit of a mix so their membership is is significantly more conservative than i think we'd priced in but when it got to the second round thumbs of use of one by the golden ratio or the curse ratio as some may call it 52 to 48 those numbers are going to follow us around for the rest of human history i'm terrified to say they are they're cursed they're cursed that's interesting it will be interesting to see where this takes the smp because 
again, I miss a lot of Scottish politics, but I think Nicola Sturgeon resigning was a shock for me. Was it was it a shock generally? You know how in houses you, you have walls that you can't knock down because if you knock them down, the whole building starts to get a bit shaky. Nicola Sturgeon became very clear very early on in this contest. That's kind of what Nicola Sturgeon was for the SNP. She was like a supporting wall for the entire party because this is a party that hasn't had a huge amount of leadership contests in its recent history. So Alex Salmon was leader from 1990 to 2000. Then he wasn't leader for four years from 2000 to 2004. And then he was leader from 2004 to 2014. So it's nearly 20 years since the SNP have had to really reflect on who they are as a party, what do they mean, and you know, and to try and take the independence movement forward. The last time they had a leadership election, a contested leadership election, they weren't in government. So it becomes a very different proposition of electing a leader of an opposition party from electing someone you know is going to be the next leader of your country. So the, the SNP have had a, a hell of a time essentially during this leadership election, trying to work out what their next step is, not only on in terms of managing the country they are elected to govern, but also in terms of how they work in partnership with other parties that support independence. So a big part of the SNP leadership contest had been the Butte Agreement, the agreement with the Green Party and how they govern Scotland moving forward, but also the rate and pace and approach to the next independence referendum, if any such thing ever occurs in Scotland. So they've had such massive, massive questions and it's inevitable that when you're faced with so many massive, massive questions and the leadership and ideology vacuum, essentially, it's inevitable you're going to have a contest that's quite as dramatic and, well, arguably not dramatic, but certainly as as eye-opening in terms of the, the splits within the party as this one has been. So where does it leave independence? I don't necessarily know. I think realistically, there's probably about 40% of people die hard, you're never going to change their mind, that's yes and no, and then it's that 20% in the middle. I don't think this leadership contest has been particularly conducive towards moving people towards the yes side. You'll have to see how Humza Yusuf governs the country in order to see whether he convince, can convince people that the SNP can run Scotland well and it's worth voting for Scotland to be an independent country. Uh, but I think the inevitability now of the next UK Labour government makes it makes it much, much harder for the SNP to convince people that the only alternative to Tory-led England is the SNP and independence when it looks so likely that Labour are going to win the next UK election. They're, they're polling really well in Scotland as well now. So I think the independence campaign in Scotland is not impossible to get over the line, but it's been made significantly harder in the last two months or so. Now, I've, I've got to hop in here. Now, when you said that Labour are polling really well in Scotland. What you mean that they're polling a lot a lot better than they have been recently. They're not we're not talking about the days when Scottish Labour used to win every single seat. You know, oh the, no, 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 you know, absolutely this is, not. No. This is poll, this is polling really well by comparison to the last decade. Absolutely, Rich. You're quite right to call me up on that. But when you factor in that UK UK Labour had essentially been trying to budget winning the entire general election by getting maybe one or two seats in Scotland, the fact that they might win 20 seats in Scotland makes the potential yeah. for a UK government, uh, so a Labour government at Westminster significantly easier. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that hits straight to, straight to the point that the, the real winner of this SNP leadership election is the Labour Party, because um, for as long as Nicola Sturgeon was going to be First Minister, there was no way that Labour were going to mount a serious comeback. But unfortunately for the SNP, both of the candidates that were, well, I say both the candidates, technically there were three candidates, but both of the realistic candidates to be First Minister were deeply flawed. In fact, Ash Regan, the, who came third, was deeply flawed. Uh, candidate as well. I mean, widely, you know, taking what you might perceive as the ultra route on Scottish independence as a sort of almost like an Alex Salmon proxy candidate from the Alba party. Um, she was never going to never going to win. But the other two characters, I, I, I mean, you know, for all of their many strengths, and and I think you can see, uh, certainly in terms of capturing the the continuity sturgeon spirit, Hamza Yusuf had many strengths, and Kate Forbes has, has had a very successful ministerial career as finance minister, despite being one of the youngest finance ministers. Um, and she has, you know, won a lot a lot of plaudits for doing that. But they both have their flaws. And in Kate Forbes's case, you know, a lot of the the talk was about her religious and conservative cultural beliefs, which, you know, certainly came to the fore very quickly, as Matt said. But she also had had a really short tenure as finance minister. We have incredibly short-term memories in the age of Twitter, but and it's easy to forget that just a couple of years ago, it was uh, Derek McKay who was the finance minister in Scotland and widely perceived as being the successor in waiting to Nicola Sturgeon. But then he was forced to quit after a, a series of inappropriate text messages. Tell me if you've heard this story about politicians doing something inappropriate over text before. And that then thrust Kate Forbes into the limelight as, as um, finance secretary. And she's done very well in that job, but she's obviously not the finished article. Anyone who saw any of the debates would see that she's not the finished article in terms of a politician at the top of their game. And of course, Hamza Youssef himself, you know, for, like I say, many strengths that he he has, he's also overseen uh, a Scottish healthcare system, a Scottish NHS, which is in a terrible, terrible place. And, you know, tell me again if this is familiar, it doesn't seem very likely that someone who has overseen a recent terrible uh, performance of a devolved NHS system should really be a contender for the leadership. I think in many other circumstances he wouldn't have been, but... You know, he was the right person at the right time, and he has just managed to scrape this this home. And we'll wait to see how well he performs. But you know, the people who are really happy about this are the unionist community because the flaws, the the leadership campaign exposed the flaws, and now both the Conservatives, thanks to it being Hamza Hamza Yusuf who won, the Conservatives will consider themselves to have an opportunity to peel away some of those socially conservative voters and maybe. No, economically conservative voters away from the SNP and the Labour Party will see many opportunities to appeal to do the reverse. So I, I, I think it'd be very interesting to see. But as Matt said, quite rightly, I think the era of SNP dominating Scotland, as Labour does in Wales, are probably at an end for now. And it's going to be a very difficult series of elections up ahead for the SNP. What you said has been really, really interesting. But I think we've got to look at Wales Let's let's first look. We've had is it three quarters of the party conferences, Matt? We've had Labour played and the Lib Dems met in Swansea at the weekend. So again, I haven't really followed these in much detail. I don't think there's been much coming out of any of them. I think Welsh Labour did something uh, about their kind of governancy relationship with UK Labour, which there was a bit of a loving over. But did anything else, Matt? I think you might have attended some of these. Anything else come out of these which worth noting? 
Uh, I was at Labour, Kerry. This is going to sound obvious coming from me, but I think uh, a very positive uh, conference. Lots attend well attended by members of Parliament, as it becomes likely that some of them may be ministers in the next UK government. But no, the, the big announcement from uh, Welsh Labour conference was again, yeah, the, the motion to devolve the rule book, which would give Welsh Labour certain additional authorities over aspects of the selection processes and policy making in devolved areas. But again, obviously it will have to be approved by UK Labour Conference in October. Uh, we'll see what happens there. Nobody knows. Thinking about the direction, the general direction of travel in the Labour Party, I can't imagine it has gone down particularly well, but we'll have to see. And wasn't the other key thing that came out of Labour Party conference was Keir Starmer's promise to re-devolve uh, an equivalent amount of funding to European funds um, that was taken away essentially by the Conservative UK governments over the last few years post-Brexit. That sort of post-EU funding is due to return to the Welsh government should Labour win the next election. That's the re-devolving that is the, is the main policy announced, wasn't it? Yeah, and I'm sure that's welcome news to a number of large institutions in Wales, particularly the university sector, who are incredibly concerned by the fact that they have been sort of locked out of the uh, e-replacement funding processes. I mean, they can bid with local authorities, but you know, how many local authorities are going to be bidding for university research projects when they've got a bridge that needs building? Well, not a road anymore, of course, but maybe like a bridge they've got in their community that needs uh, some additional funding. So it's 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 wise because it means it allows for better strategic use of that cash, I think, than what we're going to see a lot of, which is people just randomly trying to spend money in their constituency so they can say they had the money. I mean, people never spend money randomly at the year end, do they, carry? They, they're always very diligent with how they spend public finance. Oh, are we moving into that part of the pod? No, 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 I'm, just, okay, I'm just trailing yeah. it. I'm just trailing it. I'm trailing I, it. I'm warming I, everybody up. Nicely I, done. As, as a, I used to be able to spend end of year money, chaps. It was it was fun and games, and uh, it looks like there is still fun and games even at the higher level. But I thought I I dipped in a little bit to Mark Drakeford's kind of conference speech, which I think was very powerful. I think was very well received, wasn't it, Matt? Particularly with his personal circumstances around this time. Yeah, obviously everyone I think is who's listening to this is probably aware of the sad passing of Mark's wife, Claire, only, only a few weeks before. And um, he, he alluded to that sad passing during the speech. And I, I think in subsequent interviews as well, it was alluded to uh, without being uh, mentioned to directly. Um, but basically everybody I spoke to the weekend in Llandidno for the Welsh Labour Conference, everybody I spoke to was amazed by his sort of superhuman strength to even be there and to to show his commitment to trying to make Wales a better place. But also a number of people came up to me and said, you know, listening to Mark, it reminds them why they're members of the Labour Party. Sadly, I don't think there were too many people who said the same thing to me about Keir Starmer's speech, but, you know. It was a it was a cracking speech on behalf of Mark Drakeford. By the way, I you know just chipping in. I watched it live, and uh, I know that I was spamming the Hiraith group chat with plaudits for the delivery of Mark Drakeford's speech. But I also think you know, in addition to the personal characteristics that he laid bare in that speech, I think also he he laid down the gauntlet for Keir Starmer on a number of issues about um, proportional representation, you know, to, you know, with Keir Starmer in attendance um, on uh, de future devolution, promises of future devolution. And um, that a lot of that stuff was 
it was like oil and water with uh, Keir Starmer's speech. There was not very much of that reciprocated at all. And uh, as most observers picked up, there's not disharmony, but neither is there harmony. While the only place where Labour continues to be in power is asking for things and not getting them. And now with with the uh, everybody drunk on the um, the sense of hope in the room that there might be a Labour government in Westminster in the near future, it, it continues to be possible that there might not be. And I think that those kind of fudges at the moment would be very interesting to see what happens with those should uh, Labour not manage to find itself in government after the next UK general election. That's going to be a really interesting thing just to watch, particularly with a potential change of First Minister in Wales. I think it's going to be a very, very interesting situation. I mean, on, on the issue of proportional representation, I'm yet to ever meet a Labour MP that is particularly in favour of, well, it's a lie. I'm yet to meet a Labour MP in Wales who's particularly in favour of proportional representation. So I can't imagine that being in the next uh, UK Labour manifesto, put it that way. It's also fair to say that the big announcement at Labour conference was uh, UK Labour committing when in government to uh, provide the Barnet consequential from HS2. I, I think they did commit to that, didn't they, Matt? Or is, is that no, 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 oh, no, right, no, okay. no, 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 no. Of course they okay. didn't. No, 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 no. Hang on, hang on, guys. I think <laughs> the really big announcement at Welsh Labour conference was the fact that there was a, a live Hiraith Wales Governance Centre event chaired by very own Matthew Hexter mm. about Nye Davis's uh, new book about Nier and Bevan. I mean, that was the top story. Everything else is just in a background noise, frankly. <laughs> should we should we move on to Plaid Cymru? Do you want to do Plaid yeah. Cymru? Yeah. So I wasn't at Plaid Cymru. Uh, hands up. But I have spoken to a number of people who were. From my understanding, it was pretty flat. From those who I've spoken to who've been in that strategy meeting, it was not really a strategy. I mean, trying to come second in an election doesn't seem much of a strategy to me. It seems like a you know wishful thinking. There, there seems to be a disconnect in terms of what Plaid Cymru want and quite how to get there. And I think that is something that will need to be fleshed out in the future. Would you agree, Rich? Yeah, um, I would say that... The majority of the interesting stuff at conference um, was the uh, you know the the old metaphor about that on the surface the duck look like looks like it's just kind of floating along, but underneath there are a lot of a lot of thrashing of limbs trying to figure out what's actually going on and try and propel things forward. And um, oh, I just said the word propel. Oh, got a bad taste in my mouth all of oh. a sudden. Um, uh, no, uh, Plycomry continues to not be functioning as well as it needs to be and uh, unfortunately a lot of the problems that are well known everywhere about you know slightly disappointing results um, at parliamentary election the looming threats of potentially losing seats at the next UK uh, election because of the redrawn constituencies and you know continuing structural problems around the office of the leader and you know perceived cliqueiness real or perceived cliqueiness i should say and a lot of those announcements seem to suggest that the depth of consultation within the party is still not where it needs to be uh, in order for the party to function and it's a lot of unresolved problems with Ply Cymru. and i have to say that you know that that idea of announcing uh, that their political strategy is as you say, sort of not to, not necessarily to lead the next government, but to find a way into government. Actually, I mean, that is reflective of reality. And we've talked a lot about recently on the pod about One Wales and the very, you know the actual quite successful period when Plaid Cymru was in a formal coalition with Labour 2007 to 2011. 
um, and the subsequent sort of quasi coalitions or supply and confidence deals. But it doesn't suggest a party that's in really rude health that that's the the ambition at the moment. Um, I was going to say, Rich. I mean, fair enough. Political reality determines that you probably have to say our best time, our best hope for the moment is to form some part of a coalition government. It's better to be in government than out enacting our ideas, making them real. But coupled with what I can see, that strategy is the ambition to be part of a government, probably with Labour, because there won't be, I mean, I know I know there's a number of MSs that wouldn't accept being in government with the Conservatives. So most likely being the junior partner in a government with, with Welsh Labour. But the second part of the strategy seems to be criticise basically everything that Welsh Labour do to make people realise that actually they should be voting for Plaid Cymru. Now, one, I'm not sure if that really works in terms of collective responsibility being in a government with each other. You've got to share the benefits and detriments of each policy through a coalition. But two, why are you announcing this policy to the public by saying, ah, what we're going to do is we're going to get Welsh Labour to agree to form a government with us, but what we're actually going to do is subtly slag them off the entire time. Uh, what, why do why why is this what what I mean why yeah why has Plaid announced this as its policy, but also to how will that work in practice, Rich, if that if that is Plaid's political strategy for the next Senate term? Matthew, you ask a question that not only all political commentators will be asking, but many Plaid campaigners and members will be asking as well. It doesn't seem to make any sense. And and with the uh, cooperation agreements coming to an end, it, I have to say it did feel a little bit like, if I can use a football metaphor, it felt like a come and get me plea. I I, I think it's it feels like flailing. It feels unfocused. And it certainly doesn't feel like an election winning proposition. It is perplexing. I don't think anyone has an answer. I mean, I, I think it would be quite interesting if we actually heard more from the leadership about why that is the policy that they have developed and proposed. Um, we wait for that further indication. Who knows is the answer. I, 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 there's a lack of clarity. Um, and um, it just seems a very a very muddled position. Um, uh, and I, I just don't understand. I don't understand it either. Please, somebody somebody explain it to us at, yeah. at, at HeroithPods on Twitter. <laughs> We've talked, I, you know, I, I, I have moaned on probably now for about a year and maybe longer of a year than a year, saying, I, I think there's some stress in this cooperation agreement. I think that started to come to the fore. But Kerry, last week, well, applied conference, you saw Renap Yorweth call for the sacking of Leonid Morgan. And then last week, Plaid Cymru voted with the Welsh Conservatives in a vote of no confidence in the Minister of Health and Social Services. So can you talk a little bit about the background to that vote of no confidence and sort of what's going on in the health field a bit? Well, I can talk a little bit about that, but I think you both be aware, and I'm sure people listening will be aware, that uh, our North Wales Health Board, Betsy Wallader, was returned to special measures uh, in the past month um, on the back of a variety of reasons, but I think the nail that pushed it over the edge was an Audit Wales report into board governance and how they operated and I think there's been a chain of events since then, which, for good or for ill, has led to you know that that plied criticism of the health um, position in Wales, fomenting itself into a conservative-led um, vote of no confidence, which 
You know, there was a long debate. There was a full hour debate with interesting segments from both sides. I did, I did watch that one. Eventually defeated. I think it would have been defeated with just Labour, but Jane Dodds also voted with Welsh Labour. So that that's an interesting development of that. But um, yeah, the behind the scenes, the political grandstanding, you still have Betsy being returned to special measures. There, there are issues there. There are issues across Wales, really, in the health sector. You know, it's not unique to Wales. Rich, you mentioned uh, Scotland earlier. They do have problems. England do. Waiting lists are at huge levels, although last week's latest figures was another a drop in Wales, which must be a welcome relief. But I think it's going to run and run, run and run. The, the Betsy situation, there are no quick fixes, I don't think. And I think the backbiting and or sniping from all involved, the independent board, which were removed by the minister, I don't think they feel treated that well. And I know the chair who was uh, asked or forced to step down, Mark Pollin, came out with all guns blazing last week in his article. And, you know, that's really interesting. So what can you do? Health is a massive part of what Welsh government do. It needs that scrutiny. It's the one where you get the votes of no confidence regularly. I think this one for a minister was 11 years after the last vote of no confidence, which was, again, health. You know, applied really, if they want to be a credible kind of opposition, they need that scrutiny on that huge part of Welsh government. And I think they had to put that vote in the way that they did. But where are the solutions? And that's what we need to see. I think Plaid have come out earlier this year with some ideas. You know, one of my work hats on, we're pushing for various things. But Welsh government are moving in those. There was an announcement for a diagnostic and treatment hub in Lantricent, which is being developed. So we are moving in the right direction, but, you know, where we are with health in Wales, with the the ageing demography we've got, the post-industrial, we've got a very, very difficult place to be in. And you can see how both arguments around funding on one side, how mismanagement on the other are just going to run and run. Rich, do you think it's a case of this motion of confidence, though, being more of a, the attempt to get a political scalp than it is to actually necessarily move the dial on any of the issues affecting the NHS in Wales? Well, more than one thing could be true at the same time, Matthew. Uh, you know, it would certainly not do any harm for Plaid Cymru and the Conservatives, both looking to either win or hold seats in the north of Wales um, uh, at the next election, to publicly um, get a scalp in terms of the health minister. But uh, also, the, the the answer is right that... Uh, that um, the health minister gave in the Senate that, you know, changing the person in the seat wouldn't necessarily make a huge amount of difference. But there is also a genuine case, I think, and I know as we've seen from many campaign groups, that what we have at the moment simply isn't good enough. And the question is, how do you address that? I mean, what other way is there in Wales of changing that situation? We can't change the United Kingdom government by ourselves because we have so few members of the parliament over there. So what can what else can you do? You can try and change the people in charge of it inside Wales. And you know, one can't blame the opposition parties for throwing light on this, but whether a change of health minister, somebody else coming in from the Labour group would actually make any difference, I think it's very difficult to see that that would in, in, in any way, because it wouldn't necessarily change policy and it 
probably and it's not going to suddenly magic a huge amount of money out of thin air in order to either invest in capital uh, projects on the ground to improve the estate or to suddenly train a gazillion more healthcare um, professionals. Um, however, Kerry did mention there, I need to segue because we skipped Lib Dem conference, but I do need to segue that, that it was noted that uh, Jane Dodds, Jane Dodds, the sole Liberal Democrats member of the Senate, did decry the attempt to unseat uh, Leonard Morgan as um, a health minister by describing it as not grown-up politics. Um, although without actually endorsing the performance of the current health minister. And in fact, um, as anyone who follows Jane on Twitter would see, has also been championing things like uh, a Welsh COVID inquiry, which is obviously deeply opposed by the Welsh government um, in its current form. And I think it was very interesting to see that, uh, as many people did, as a potential uh, opening of the door to a closer relationship between Jane Dodds as the sole Lib Dem in the Senate and the Welsh Labour government, uh, in the future, should the Applied Cymru Cooperation Agreement start to creak and perhaps fall away? Because with Jane Dodd's sole vote, it's possible, of course, that the Welsh Government could pass you know, some of its key legislation, including a budget. So interesting manoeuvres. What, what, if anything, have we picked up from either Jane's recent statements in the Senate or from a Welsh Lib Dem conference in Swansea that took, took place just a week or so ago? I think it's fair to say that the Liberal Democrats didn't get too much press attention, though when I did go on BBC World Politics this morning, the homepage was uh, Jane Dodds saying that we should all aim to be a bit kinder. So I'm going to be a bit kinder in my analysis and say that it's unfortunate that Lib Dems don't necessarily get the same kind of uh, press attention that the other parties do. But unfortunately, I think that's just inevitable, the fact they are significantly smaller in Wales. But I think... From what I could see, they had a number of um, fairly good debates and motions, and they're an incredibly, as it, as is in the name, fairly democratic party. So they have a good history of, of of passing motions in a democratic fashion, which is more than can be said, I think, for some of the other larger parties. I have a tendency to get a bit lost sometimes trying to do that. But yeah, I, I think there was debates on having an independent NHS executive. I think there was debates on banning disposable vape pens. Um, motions expressing solidarity uh, from the UK and Wales to Ukraine. But I don't think there was too much beyond that that I saw that was significantly policy heavy. Yes, absolutely. I might be about to get told up by Kerry for this, so I apologise in advance. One of the one of the things that came out in the following the uh, Lib Dem conference was backing for free ports joining a chorus of approval for the recent announcement between Welsh Gov and UK Gov that we are going to have not just one, but two free ports in the near future in Wales. Uh, what do we know about what's planned and why have we got political, unanimous political support for them, apart from Take It Roberts, hat tip, and how has it manifested itself in this way? I don't think we do have unanimous political support. I think that's unfair to say. I think that the Welsh government were have begrudgingly come round to the fact that they will accept the investment of the UK government in the free ports. I mean, that was a long negotiated process. Firstly, Welsh free ports were set to get less money than UK free ports. The Welsh government insisted they got the same money. Then they added in they added in um, policy relating to net zero and fair work into the uh, Freeport structures so that they have to ensure fair work uh, and an aim to decarbonize. And I think that 
if you look at the 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 fact that those poor areas have been so badly impacted by Brexit, I think it's very hard for people to necessarily want to turn down that kind of level of investment in these poor areas. Holyhead has has had a significant economic impact uh, from the lack of uh, trade that now goes through at that port because of Brexit. The, the loss of the land bridge has a significant economic impact on that area. Uh, and also, I think that they do present really good opportunities to invest in offshore renewable energy projects. But like I said, I think it's it's unfair to say that there's been widespread political unanimous support for these projects because Plaid Cymru don't support them. There are significant amounts of Labour backbenchers who are wary of free ports, but they are willing to support the investment. I think that there are, like a lot of you know, socialists, social democrats have got severe concerns over the tax status of free ports and what that might mean for long-term economic prosperity in the areas. Uh, most people welcome the £26 million investment in those areas. There again have been concerns that these freeport areas won't see the creation of new jobs, they will just displace existing economic activity. So there's a lot to be worked out in terms of making sure that they actually work for the people of these areas and aren't just moving capital around Wales and being a detriment to long-term investment and economic prosperity in Wales as well. But we'll wait and see, see what happens. I'm curious to say uh, what you said about Ply Cymru not supporting it. I seem to recall seeing Llinos Medi of uh, Anglesey ah, and well, it's more Council. Re, re and Llinos Medi are very supportive. Very of supportive course, of, indeed, course, yeah, absolutely. Very supportive of the Freeport in, yeah. uh, in, on, on this morning, but generally... Like yeah. Henry are not supportive of, of course, yeah. So, but we all know what goes on more and stays on more, yeah. yeah. That's yeah, <laughs> no, no. I, I think Freeport is an interesting one. I, I think, gents, we may have to revisit Freeport and perhaps those kind of wider interventions by the UK government, capital city regions, enterprise zones, and just have a little chat about whether they do deliver what they're promised. I, you mentioned Tegard there, who did speak on Politics Wales on Sunday, I thought really well, and put the kind of questions on what these things are. But, you know, I think we're in a position with Wales, and I, I'm a big supporter of that. We've got to play the game. If UK government are throwing money around, we've got to be there and take advantage. And I think that's where we are with free ports in Wales. I think there's a reluctance from everyone, but we'll take the money. I don't think anyone believes each of them is going to create 20,000 jobs. <laughs> like, where, where are the people for these jobs and where do they live, if nothing else. But I, I think we'll come back to free ports and city deals and those things. So the budget, any great shake from the budget? Wales didn't get much money, but the political fallout has been on the childcare policy announced by UK government. Do we think Wales is going to go down that route? It's policy on the back of a fag packet for me. You can't agree to something when you haven't got a clue how many people you've got employed, how many children they can look after, what premises you've got. So I think Welsh government being guarded is okay, but I know the Conservatives and Andrew R.T. Davis is on a, a one-man Twitter campaign to to get this money into uh, Welsh nurseries. But anything else in the budget? I want to talk about childcare for a second because it's one of these uh, horrible moments where politics and policy are are running smack into each other and they're going to butt heads. Because on a policy basis, I completely agree with Mark Drakeford. You can't just announce a policy and, and throw money at childcare without 
making capital investment in order to grow the facilities, to ensure that there are the number of uh, carers and child minors in place to ensure that you can actually look after people from uh, that are people's children that are one and two years old. Mark Draper in policy terms is, is correct, I think, that you can't just announce this policy and actually get to the point where you're building up people's hopes and expectations that are there, if they're about to have children or have young children, that they will be able to get free childcare, get access to free childcare. One of the worst things I think you can do to people in politics is, is give them false hope that all their prayers will be answered, because I don't think that's what this policy does. But in terms of politics, I think it becomes a really tricky thing for Mark Drakeford because I've had quite a few people who are either have young children or expecting children in the next few years come up to me and go, why aren't they replicating this in Wales? It's a no-brainer. And it's it may have an impact in one of the areas where Welsh Labour is possibly most popular, which is with young young families. So it's it puts them in a really tricky political bind uh, and I don't know how often Mark Drakeford can go, well, they're just trying to catch up to what we're doing in Wales. They're only offer, offering 38, out, uh, 38 weeks a year. We're offering 48 already. You know, there's only so long that can happen. But I don't think it is right for Mark Drakeford to, to announce an expansion of this policy without knowing for absolutely certain that they'll actually be able to provide the childcare that they would then subsequently offer. Because if they do that, giving people false hope is, I think, a horrific and a horrible wrong thing to do. And you, and you know why Welsh Labour are quite vocal on this? Because they learnt the hard way when they announced the three and four-year-old childcare of all these problems that we don't have the nursery staff and we don't have the premises to do everything that you promised. So they've been down here already. We're, we're running out of time for tonight's recording and there's various things that we could touch on, like the roads review. I'd love to get your thoughts on that, but I think we should come back to that in a standalone pod because, you know, that that's caused a few issues. Is it fair to say, Matt, in Labour? Didn't they vote um, with the opposition on one of the amendments mm. when they were discussing that? Uh, so, yes, there was a Welsh Conservative motion uh, that was basically expressing distaste at the Roads Review panel uh, report uh, that was amended by Plaid Cymru motion that essentially stated that you you ended up with a situation where Welsh Labour essentially voted to express regret that there hadn't been sufficient consultation with uh, the community and political stakeholders in delivering the Roads Review report. So yeah, I mean, you've also seen that there's a number of um, the letters being leaked this week with relating from the WLGA, the Welsh Local Government Association, some people expressing concern uh, in their political leadership about the Roads Review. Um, so, yeah, and I think the backbenchers in the Senate were uh, a little bit peeved, I think is a fair way of describing the situation, that some of the roads projects in their constituency, uh, constituencies have been cancelled. As someone who was working in Newport West, when the M4 relief road got cancelled, they you know they, they felt probably how we all felt then. So it, it, it has been difficult, but I think that many of the problems of the roads review come with the fact of how it's been covered rather than what the policy actually is really you know it, it the, the idea that there's been this blanket banning of road building is probably the major problem it's not a blanket ban on road building it's just that certain road projects have been cancelled and that other road projects will have to pass through certain criteria before they're built and i think again this is one of the things i was meeting old university friends who live in england now and they said i said so i hear you're not never building any more roads in wales 
And I think so many of the so much of the problem is is how it's been reported. This idea that Wales is now closed for for business and investment from outside of Wales is is a massive issue. Um, and I think that there's a significant job on behalf of the Welsh government and supporters of the road review report uh, to get out there and and state that it's not a complete ban on road building. Uh, it is, you know. There are all these criteria, and I'm sure there are people who support the roads review who would want an all, uh, an outright ban on on the building of roads. But I think that if you do that, it makes it harder to bring otherwise sympathetic people along with you on your cause. So I think it's it's important that the people who support that campaign, who support that project, make it very clear with basically everyone they talk to um, that this is what's happening. I think we are going to get some some experts in the field into talk roads and and if we can add some trains and buses in as well and have a, a transport pod, it's the way to go because none of that has really had a good start to the year. And I think if we move to a little bit of looking forward, I think there is a little bit on all of those which um, we've got something to look forward to. But the one thing I wanted to just ask you both is, you know, looking forward now the next three, four months going into the summer, where, where do you see the big ticket items? Industrial unrest is still ongoing, but various various parties are making agreements. I think Welsh teachers agreed with Welsh government recently, and at least one part of the RMU had a settlement last week. But do you think we're going to get the big the big ticket um, industrial action to be resolved anytime soon? Well, I mean, for what year, Kerry? Because it's 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 eight it's nearly april now it'll probably be april by the time people are listening to this this pod and we're still negotiating last year's pay so you're going to get very quickly to the situation where you start negotiating this year's pay so what industrial dispute are you trying to get us to resolve that this last year's or this year's i i'm still on the toll puddle martyrs man <laughs> fantastic museum down in Topod. Well, i'd recommend no. everybody listening go and see it no, in seriousness, I, I would still be on strike from when my civil service contract pensions were changed about 10 years ago. But, yeah, I, I, I think the one which resonates with the, the public most is the nurses and whether that continues. You know, we're back to that health issue in England as well. You've got junior doctors. You've got a big four days' worth of industrial action around Easter. Um, anything else in this spring into summer you think which we're really going to focus on Kerry I know you want us to look forward right but I want to pick your civil service brain so we talked a bit about it earlier the public accounts committee report on the underspend explain to the uninitiated among us what an underspend is why it matters and why the money's gone back to the UK government having been out of the civil service now for some time it, it does does take some remembering but it, it is what it says on the tin mat you know you get uh given your budgets whether that's from uk government to welsh government or uk gov uh, welsh government to its various departments and within that budget you have to spend it in that time the the year which is what public sector finance is operating on annually if you don't spend it you generally lose it whether that's a welsh government department back to uh, Welsh Government reserves, or as in this case, it's from UK Government to Welsh Government. And as I understand it, previous agreements about being allowed to keep certain pots, UK Government 
decided not to agree on this particular occasion. I think Welsh Government put various options to them. And the UK Government said, no, if you don't spend it, we'll have it back. And I think, what was it, 130-odd million in 21-22, the height of the pandemic. So Public Accounts Committee, I think they focused on that. I think, I haven't read it as it's come out today, but there are a few other areas around governance. I think there were some things around the the pre an old permanent secretary's uh, how her finances were managed, things like that, which they focused on. But, you know, the big ticket item, that £130 million plus is, if you don't spend it, UK government have the right to draw it back. And on this occasion, they did. And, you know, we've talked about three ports tonight, 20, 26 million North and South Wales. You know, it, it just shows the figures we're looking at here, that 130 plus million could have been used in Wales. It, you know, when you get to that kind of position, end of year spend is hard to do. But the critics will say Welsh Government should have spent it. Welsh Government may well be saying we want to put it in our reserves, use it when we need it, change it from revenue to capital, use it on infrastructure. So there's probably there's probably politicking going on, but Wales does need that money and it shouldn't really have been allowed to go back. And we know the rules. We've had 25 years now of these finance financial systems operating. We should have been able to do that. And in fairness to Welsh Government, I, I think how the public sector operates in the financial envelopes it does on this annual basis is awful. And I remember when I joined the civil service 25 years ago, something like that, you know, it was one of the things which struck me that how it operated. And I remember speaking to some treasury officials and there was always a program of trying to create a three-year envelope, which would be so much easier to work in. But that, you know, 25 years later still hasn't come to fruition. And we operate on that annual budget cycle, both at that national level and at departmental level. Doesn't that lead, though, to a, a sort of this perverse situation where government departments just want to spend money on basically anything just so they get the equivalent sum back the next year? So that's surely not a good use of public money, is it? I, I never found it comfortable, and I am not going to say some of the stuff I'm aware of on this <laughs> podcast. But end-of-year spend is fun and games, gents. Fun and games. Um, right, next up. Well, we can, we can talk about the Welsh Rugby EGM, which will save Welsh Rugby, and we will now be a fighting force in the pan-global URC and, of course, win this year's World Cup. I'm glad that was sorted. Yeah, great. I was going to say, are you, are you looking forward to going to watch the uh, Ealing Ospreys, uh, Kerry, uh, every weekend, um, like me? I, 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 I'm lost. I, I do just watch a little bit of grassroots rugby now and some of the big ticket items. But I am actually in Clenetley on Friday night for the European Challenge Cup match against Breve, I believe. So, yeah, still go out when somebody offers me a ticket. I'll still go and watch any game, to be honest. Well, I'm sure you'll look really, you'll, you'll really enjoy watching Northampton Scarlets as they take on Breve on Friday night. As you know, obviously we've we've had a lot of chat about uh, sport this week in the here I uh, group chat. As I lost my mind watching Wales against Croatia, and then you two had the last laugh as uh, we equalised in the ninety third minute. And um, I'm sure many of our listeners will be going 
uh, to watch Wales Latvia tomorrow night, like me, uh, at the Cardiff City Stadium. So um, hopefully I'm not treated to a completely boring nil-nil draw. Yeah, well, and uh, you'll also get uh, the chance that very few of us will have, which is to say goodbye to the King as Gareth Bale makes his farewell tour at uh, the Cardiff City Stadium. And I think uh, everyone will want to thank him, you know, for, you know, you know an unparalleled com- uh, contribution to uh, Welsh football and the profile of Wales internationally uh, over the last few years. I mean, it'll be a phenomenal experience. You know, I, I, I share your pessimism. That it would be, <laughs> as I think, as, as I think, Alice James tweeted out today, it would be classic Welshness to go and get a really creditable away result against one of the best teams in the world. They've never lost a European qualifier, uh, Croatia, and they've only drawn one European home European qualifier before the game that we played them a few days ago. It was a one-one draw. There it was an absolutely phenomenal result for a weekend Wales side. It was not exactly how you might want to achieve it, but full credit to. Uh, the first Bangor-born goal scorer for Wales since 1901, uh, Nathan Broadhead, absolutely phenomenal. And, you know, uh, let's go into uh, um, a, a perilous home game against bottom-seeded Latvia with all the scepticism we need. But let's uh, let's hope that the, the, the team perform with the same level of guts, frankly, and tenacity that they did um, uh, against uh, Croatia. That was absolutely great. You, your negativity. I, 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 I see us getting a result tomorrow, and I, I, I'm confident of a one or two nil win. The wonders of international football is that Nathan Broadhead's last two goals have been against Accrington and then Croatia. It's, it's just brilliant. Right, gentlemen, thank you very much this evening. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. If people want to f- find uh, out more from you on social media, where can they go? Uh, Kerry Davis remains Kerry the Viking on Twitter. Richard. Uh, thank you, Matt. Uh, I'll be um, uh, mostly on Twitter, despite Elon Musk uh, at Mimosa Cymru. Wonderful. And you can find me on Twitter at Hexter101, H-E-X-T-E-R-101. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard this evening, please don't forget to find Hereith on all the socials at HereithPod. Uh, go to our website, www.walespolitics.com. And thank you very much for supporting us with your ears. But if you would like to do so with your wallet, you can go to www.patreon.com forward slash HereithPod. Thank you for listening to Hereith. If you like what you heard, please don't forget to subscribe, rate and review.